dance together last night, and it should be enjoyable. God has made this word. This word tells us who he is. It tells us who we are. We'll look a little bit more closely at that today. And it should bring us enjoyment to look at his word. We shouldn't first be seeking that feeling, but that feeling ought to come as we are discovering the truth of who we are and what this world's all about. And so I'm prayerful that as we go through these uh, next lessons today, we'll begin to clear up that cracked lens view we talked about at the end of the lessons yesterday, that as we look at this world just through its through the, the scope of itself, we can't help but have wrong conclusions because this world is broken. We'll see that really clearly by the end of our studies today. We've got to come to the one who made it to show us how it's meant to be and show us how to fix that broken view. So we've learned a lot about God in chapter 1. We've been looking at the nature of the creator by means of his creation, certainly a biblical precedent for that, Psalm 19. David exalts the creator by looking at the creation. Paul, as he taught the pagans uh, in Athens, went to the glory of the creator to talk about who they should be worshiping. And as we look, the, the Bible itself begins with a description of the creator by showing us a description of the creation. So we've learned that God is eternal. We've learned that God is spirit. We've learned that God's power, his authority, resides in his word. He says, let there be, and things just are, because he has that kind of authority. We see that God is a God who separates or makes things holy, as he is holy. We see that God's a God of order. He divides things into their proper perspective and then names them, gives them purpose. We've seen so many things about God. That was in five verses we saw that. <laughs> and we've, we will see so much more as we go through the rest of this. We see that God is a God who plans and designs as he even set up all those stars to be signs up there before there was ever anybody even to look at those signs. And we'll look at what his purpose and his intent was now as we begin to look, starting at verse 26 today, begin to look at the creation of man and begin to learn who we are in God's sight. So if we may begin in Genesis 1, verse 26, I'd ask someone to read for us verses 26 through 31. Whoever would like to take that. Thank you, Jerome. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also, to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thank you, sir. So God speaks again, and so far everything he's made, he said, 
Let this thing be. Let there be light. Let there be uh, an expanse. Let there be. But his speaking is a little bit different this time. What, what is what is different about his speech here? Yes, let us. Let us. So all of a sudden he's he's not just commanding something. He's he's speaking with someone. This is a conversation. Let us make man in our image according. Hold on a second. Who in the world is he talking to? He's saying us and our, and that's repeated a couple of times here. And so far, we haven't seen anybody except God, the plants, and the animals, and the, the celestial bodies up there. Who in the world is he talking to? The Holy Ghost. I think we can see that clearly. Verse 2, the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. And so we, we certainly can, can understand the presence of the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. Who else might God be talking to here? I'm sorry? Yeah, why would you say that? I mean, you just kind of, well, he must be talking to Christ because this is, this is the Bible. <laughs> I'd say this is the Son talking to the Father because the Son is the one who's doing the creating. We certainly do see the Son's the one who's doing the creating. I don't necessarily agree with you that the Son's talking to the Father here. Well, I'll talk about why in a moment. Uh, Grady, do you have a thought on that? He says, in our image, and then he says, in the image of God, so... This is nothing other than God himself talking yes. to God himself. So this uh, hour, in some sense, is God. And we looked last night at John chapter 1, and we saw that he was in the beginning with God, the Word was God, and then all things were made through him. I believe what we discover as we go through, and we're not going to be able to do this very, very well this morning, but as we go through the Bible, we'll begin to discover that God the Father is the architect of all things. He designs and plans all things. That God the Son is the effector, is the author or, the, or the, the doer of all the things that God the Father architects. You know, God designed the plan of salvation, including the cross. God the Son went to the cross. <laughs> and God designed the plan of all creation. God the Son actually made and upholds the creation. And then how do we know about it? How do we know all these things? Who revealed it to us? God the Spirit. So we begin to see distinct roles among God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. We won't get all that detail here, but just so you don't think I'm making this up, John chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 1 speak of Jesus as the one who made all things, speaking clearly of him as the one who made all things. So we can clearly say biblically, God and Jesus are speaking here, and I believe we see this as God is giving this conversational command and Jesus is then enacting it. Now, I don't want to be dogmatic about that. It could be that Jesus is speaking to God. They both are, and I want to make sure that we understand when I say God, here I'm using God as God the Father, but that word God really describes the, the divine nature. We talked about that a little bit yesterday. Sometimes we get confused because of that. Well, is God God or is Jesus God? They're both God. God the Father is God. God the Son is God. God the Spirit is God. God is the word that we use to describe the divine nature. Sometimes we just will call God the Father God, but... We need to understand the distinction being made. So Jesus and God, at least, are conversing here. I want to make sure we're clear about that because there are all kinds of other doctrines about who's conversing here. There's a doctrine about God is speaking with the devil here, and they're deciding who's going to be the, the owner of what part of creation, and, and the devil rebels against this idea. There's That's nowhere in the Bible. You won't find that anywhere in the Bible. That's a made-up, man-made doctrine. There's another one that says God is speaking to the angels here. The angels have already been made, and God is now speaking with them. There are some psalms that indicate the joy of the angels in creation that never says, though, that they were involved in creation. They were just joyous at creation because God made them to be that type of creature. Uh, and we'll look a little bit more at that at the very beginning of chapter 2 where I'll, I'll 
kind of line out some, some thoughts for us to consider. But at any rate, this is a conversation. This is not just a let there be man. And God could have done that, but he didn't. And he didn't reveal to us that. He could have just chosen not to reveal this, but he revealed this. And so there's something we learn about what's going on here, besides the fact that God is a plurality. In fact, the word that's used here for God is the Hebrew word Elohim, that H-I-M ending is a plural ending. This is the word, literally, we would translate it gods, but we know there's not more than one divine nature. So this plurality describes the singular, the unique God nature. There is only one humanity. We talk about humanities, unless we're talking about school or something. We're studying the arts and the humanities. But there's one humanity, even though it's made of all these different people. So we understand that concept of a plurality in a singular word. And that's the way this, this word God, Elohim, is. So God is speaking here, has this convert, uh, conversation. And so he's going to make man according to what? This is an interesting thing to think about as well. What does he say? In our image, according to our likeness, he uses two words to kind of help describe what he's thinking of. And so when we think about God making man, what do we think that he must be talking about? If he's making man in his image, what do we think of? Yeah, we we think of a a head and hands and and eyes, do we? So we're a product of Jesus. Yes. That we are... We are given that the same as he is. He gave us that special. In some sense, yes, we're a product of him. I think that's important (laughs) to understand. But what do we think of when we think about the image of God? I think of that God is spirit. Thank you. If we didn't have the rest of the Bible, because we tend to think of God through Jesus now, which I think is proper, so we didn't have the rest of that. If we were just Jews and all we knew was the first chapter of Genesis 1 up to this point, we didn't have the rest of the Revelation, what would we think that God looked like? We wouldn't. God is spirit. So I don't believe this text is talking about our appearance at all. That's not the point. But that's what we end up doing, is we we think about what we look like, and then we kind of retro-engineer that to what God must look like, and we begin to make God into a man. We do exactly the reverse of what this text says, because we look start with ourselves and say, God must be like me. He must have the same passions I do. My father, who was a staunch Adventist when I was growing up, told me one day, that God must have the same passions we do, even the same temptations and lusts, because David was a man after God's own heart, was made in the image of God, and the lust that David had, God must have as well. What a strange turning of what the Bible teaches us about God, and what a way to banalize, to to profane God's holy nature by trying to make him in the image of a man, even a great man like David, but a sinful man. God is not like man. And so this is not talking about our physical aspect. And what's great about this is we don't have to just imagine what else it might be talking about. The text really tells us. How is it that man is made in God's image? Well, the verse says, let them have rule or dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Up to this point, who's had rule over all the creation? Who made all the creation? Yeah, we looked at that in, in Revelation the other day. He is worthy of glory and honor and dominion because he's a creator. So he already has glory and honor and dominion over creation just naturally. But what he's done is he's made man and placed that into his hand. So he's given us an aspect of himself in giving us rule. That word dominion literally just means government or rule over the things that God has made. So God has given us the capacity then 
for ruling over his creation and for manipulating it even. We can talk about how, how that happens. Uh, so God has given us first that. There's something else. A comment. No? All right. Yes, great. Um, I, I think maybe in your first lesson last night, you talked about being able to, to look at somebody's artwork and seeing something about the, the artist. I think that to some extent, this idea of being in God's image, you know, if, if somebody paints a lot of beautiful landscape paintings, you can see maybe the talent of the mm -hmm. painter. Uh, but if they paint a painting in their own image, we call that a self-portrait. Right. We're intended to be able to see his personal characteristics. Uh, I think that's God's intent with us. Yes. Certainly we see that in Christ. We're being transformed into his image. Romans 8 talks about that. That idea that we should begin to reflect again the image of God that was lost through sin. And Romans 8 especially ties a lot back to what we'll see in these first three chapters of, of Genesis. Once you've read Genesis 1 to 3, go back and read Romans 8. You'll see the language and you'll be like, whoa, that's Genesis. <laughs> but you'll start noticing Genesis in a lot of the Bible, especially these first four chapters, going through Jeremiah, going through Isaiah, going through a lot of the Bible, you'll begin to see these foundational principles, and it'll make more sense to you, I hope, <laughs> after, after going through this. But you're right. We should be able to see, and especially in literature, People uh, uh, will talk about Hemingway or some other great writer. When you read their works, they're really revealing themselves in what they're writing there. And that's the way God is doing here. He's not only made something we can see sort of him in, but then he's told us about it through literature, through writing. And so he reveals himself both physically and then metaphysically, however you want to say it, you reveal yourself through writing. But we begin to get a complete picture of who God is, even when we look at ourselves. Later, one of the prohibitions against killing man is, he was made in my image. You don't want to go against me by killing a man. And so, uh, there's a second thing that comes up, though. First is this dominion. That's clearly an aspect of what God's been doing so far. He's handed that over to man. Then verse uh, 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. So, what does God look like? A man, woman? No, that's not the point. We're not talking about physical at all. There's something in man and woman, though, that pertains to this image and likeness of God. And then we learn why this dichotomy, why this, this uh, uh, two-phase creation, if you will. Look at verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over it. Who's been doing that to this point? God is the one who creates. He has now given man the capacity with man and woman both existing now to procreate. It is a form of creation. It is not the same as, as creation. It's a manipulation of created matter in, a, in essence. But it's part of this God nature that he's now given into our hands. So he expects us to be having rule and dominion over creation and to be producing in a way that fills, that continues to fill the void. And he expects us to be involved in that. It's amazing to me that from the very first moment that man is made, we see purpose and involvement in God's plan. And we'll see over and over, God always intended man to be involved in the work that he's doing. Certainly in the work of preaching the gospel, we see that very, uh, uh, very uh, definitive when he says that. But we always start to notice that in all of the work that God is doing here on earth, he expected man to be involved. And we'll point that out in a couple of other places. So he's given man rule, and he's given man the power of procreation. And I want you to consider even the use of those two together in things like animal husbandry and botany. 
how is it that we're able to feed the whole world? We were talking today about the invention of certain nitrate, or the discovery of certain nitrates and the invention of fertilizers and things that has made it possible to feed over 7 billion people and the world not run out of resources for that. How can we do that? You know, corn doesn't naturally just grow in straight rows out in the field, but we can make it do that. I mean, do that with all kinds of plants. And, you know, herds of, enormous herds of animals that we can eat don't just naturally roam together. We can, we can make them, though, to become more fertile and better uh, adapted for our needs. And so God has given us that ability. We'll see a little bit more about those things as we go into the text as well here in these first chapters, and we'll begin to see that all through the rest of the Bible. So God has made man, and he's given him this uh, capacity to be like him, to carry on his image and his likeness. And then verse 29, God takes care of their basic, most basic need right off the bat here. I've given you everything, uh, every herb that yields seed, and every tree whose fruit you, yields seed, it shall be for food. So God has made them at the outset vegetarians. And then the most striking one, perhaps verse 30, also to every beast of the earth, to every bird and everything that creeps, I've given them the green herb for food. There were no meat eaters at the beginning. Life was giving life through eating green plants. A lot of vegans and vegetarians and, and certainly a lot of religious groups will go to this and say, we are meant to be vegetarians. And so we ought to be going back to vegetarianism. I want you to know that in Genesis 9, God says you're also meant to eat meat. And he says you can eat what you want. In the New Testament, when he, when he undoes the, the, the food laws of the, of the Jewish state, he says all foods are clean. In fact, he says you can eat whatever you want. If it moves, you can eat it. <laughs> Just give thanks to God for it. So it is not sinful to eat meat or any other thing that, that God has made. Every creature of God was made to be enjoyed with thanksgiving. But there were restrictions in the garden. And these restrictions are part of this overarching view that all things are good. You ever watch a nature channel uh, with our kids? Sometimes we're like, well, you don't want to watch that. <laughs> Especially our little one. That'll frighten you. You won't want to pet that kitty, that big yellow <laughs> kitty that's dragging down the gazelle. We want you to pet that one anyway. <clears throat> but this idea of tooth and claw that's gruesome to watch, it's just part of nature. It's part of what these animals do. It wasn't like that in the garden. In the garden, there was no killing for food. You know, you can harvest food from an apple tree, and the apple tree continues intact. <laughs> you could even plant the seeds and grow a new one without having killed anything. You just ate the fruit that was there, and the seeds still continue to, to grow another one. But the way we reap and harvest, we actually plow the whole field up and kill everything, then we just take the seed and plant something else. But we actually killed the plant to do that. That's something new. That is not what was going on in the garden. In the garden, there was no death. There was no killing for food. There was this beautiful picture of life and harmony, and that's really the image that we're given here. Even the animals think. So it shouldn't be surprising, is there? So I have a question I always wonder about. When you get to Genesis chapter 9, verse 2, it says the fear of you and the dread of you mm -hmm. should be on every beast of the earth. Do you think that was not happening in chapter 1? I don't believe it was. I don't believe there was even a, a need for it. Uh, in fact, the indication seems to be that Noah had no issue in getting the animals to come to him and come onto the ark. But afterward, there was then this fear and dread as they were sent out. So I think that it would even explain somewhat how he was able to keep those animals from eating each other on the ark. That, that was a, an issue that used to come up. You know, how are you going to keep lions and zebras on the same ark? That's not going to happen. 150 days, they're going to kill Noah and then eat the zebras too. But it didn't happen. And you, I want you to also think about, this is kind of colorful perhaps, but the, there's less need to worry about the waste matter when they're just eating herbs than if they were eating meat. That would have been a problem on a closed-in ark over as long as they were in there, 150 days in the rain, about 300 total. 
but they were closed into this thing, that would have been some issues. That would have been actually deadly. Some of the gases that would have built up from that, but not with herbs. <laughs> and so you didn't have these animals killing each other. There may be an indication that some of them had corrupted their way as right before they go on to the ark. It seems like the earth was filled with the violence of men. Sin had corrupted the way things were going. That cracked men's view was starting to crack more and more. But it's possible that some animals were already killing others, certainly that men may have been hunting and killing animals at this point. But that wasn't the norm. After coming off the ark in this new world, there's a change. And God allows for that. That's a great question. So, uh, so it shouldn't surprise us, though, as we're going through some of the Old Testament prophets, and we'll come across a passage that'll say, the lion shall lay down with the ox, and the lion and the lamb shall graze together. And we think, what in the world is that? Is this some new earthly paradise, as is actually taught by a certain religious group? There's a new earthly paradise where the animals will just roam around free, and kids will play with snakes and pet lions. And That is not at all what the prophets are talking about. It's a reminder of what Eden was like. That's the idea. It's a picture of Eden. Not a literal picture, but a picture of what it would take for a lion and an ox to lie down together, or for a lion and a lamb to eat straw, eat the same thing. It's going to take a change of nature. Things are going to have to be restored. Now, not physically. It's speaking of a, of, a, of a spiritual change of nature. But that's the picture. It's getting back to Eden. And so we'll see a lot of that imagery in the Old Testament, especially. This longing to get back to Eden. And this, uh, this picture of peace and harmony. So as God looks at this description of all this herbs, this green herb for food, his analysis is, it is very good. And that's the seventh mention of that being good. And so that is the morning and evening, or evening and morning that, that close out the sixth. So we've got this complete picture now of the creation. But there's something else that needs taken care of. And we're going to see that very quickly into chapter two. But before we move into chapter two, any other comments or questions up through the end of this chapter? All right, someone read for us then verses one through three of chapter two. I want to just make a comment. These chapter divisions and the, the verse numbers were put in sometime in the 1600s. It may have been a little earlier than that by, uh, uh, by some, some religious people to help us all be on the same verse. Sometimes they make mistakes. This is where I believe they've made a mistake. Up through verse 3 really belongs to chapter 1. There's a huge distinction made in verse 4. I'll point it out to you. Uh, but I believe these verses really still are part of this week of creation. That may not be that important, but it's kind of interesting to note. So if somebody would read 1 through 3, we'll really finish chapter 1 with this. Thank you. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day. From all his work that he, I'm sorry, so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. All right, so we get kind of a conclusion statement here in verse 1. Uh, in verse 1 of chapter 2, thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. This just tells us all the other things that God didn't talk about was also done during this week. The host of heaven and earth was made during this week. And so what would the host of heaven be? We've seen the host of earth. That was described. That's what we focus on. And that's what God wanted us to focus on as being part of this earthly physical creation. What would be the host of heaven? Angels, cherubim. Angels, cherubim, seraphim that are all different descriptions and most popular perhaps or the most well-known, not the most popular, but 
maybe Satan. <coughs> Satan is a created being. And I want us to, to understand he is a celestial being. That seems weird. That means heavenly, doesn't it? He's a heavenly being in the sense of the nature of being spiritual. What? Satan is spiritual? Yes. <laughs> Not good spiritual, but of spirit makeup, his spirit creation. And so he's heavenly, celestial, spiritual. We see a war break out in heaven. Well, that's, that's where Satan is. <laughs> he's up there because that's his nature in, in, in Revelation chapter 12. But then he's expelled from there. He's no longer allowed to come before God with accusations is the point. And it's the cross that took that away. It was Jesus and Michael the archangel fighting with him that, that, that won that battle. And so we see that in Revelation 12 as being a point after Jesus has ascended from the cross. And he says, you no longer have a place here to accuse my, my followers. But Satan in Job is right there among the sons of God. He's among the angels because he has the same nature. That also, we'll look at that a little bit more in chapter 2, but we need to understand, being a created being, he is limited. He's not God. He doesn't have the same power God does. But being a spirit being, he's not limited by time and space like we are. So he's gotten really good at his craftiness, and we'll look at that a little more closely in chapter 3. He's been around for a long time. He's not worried the same way we are about getting old and and wrinkling up and shriveling up. He's just going to be around, and he can get around pretty easily. He's not limited by space and time as we are because of our physical bodies that limit us. So we need to remember that, but he is a creature, and that also should be helpful to us. But here it says that God made the heavenly host at the same time he made the physical host. The Bible doesn't give us much description about that. We talked about yesterday, there's a lot I'd like to know that the Bible hasn't revealed. Deuteronomy 29, those secret things belong to God. What he has revealed, I'm responsible for. And it's a shame, and it's, it's sad to me, how many people reject what he has revealed to go fight wars over what he hasn't and create doctrines and get completely lost over what he hasn't revealed. Let's follow what he's revealed, because that's what he says to me pertains to life and godliness. In 2 Peter, he says, he's given me all things that pertain to life here and godliness, getting me there. And that's all I need to know. Everything else is with him, and I'll, I'll trust him with those things. <laughs> so, great job, a comment. Yeah. Like you said, there's a lot that is not revealed to us about Satan, and uh, I think you mentioned in yesterday's study how many people take the idea of Lucifer from Isaiah and, and try, try to get some more information about Satan from that passage. Um, but, but I feel like one thing that we can know, at least, uh, from 1 Timothy 3, when it's talking about the qualifications for elders, is has not a novice list being puffed up fall into the same condemnation of the devil. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Satan... Satan fell into condemnation. So right. God did not create Satan evil. Uh, God didn't create anything evil. Yeah. When God looked at his creation, it was very good. So Satan and the angels originally had good intent. They were made for, for that. Hebrews 1.14 would tell us, I believe, not just Satan, but all the heavenly creatures, all the celestial creatures, are ministering spirits sent forth to serve those who will inherit salvation. I believe God made them for us. Uh, and I think the Bible really holds that out very clearly. Some chose they didn't want part of that. <laughs> so in some way they have free will. I'm not sure what all that entails. The Bible doesn't give us a whole lot of information. Again, what we've been given we need to work with and, and not try to extrapolate and go beyond. But they were made at this point, and that's what's important for us to note here. And so after making all the heavens and all the earth and all the host of them and then preparing things to continue now being upheld by the power of his word, What did God do on verse 2? In verse 2. On the seventh day, God rested. So it says he rested in what way? 
This is not a complete rest, as in he just quit doing anything. Uh, if he did that, we wouldn't be here. He upholds the universe by the power of his word still. He gives us life, breath, and all things still. What did he rest from? His work. His work. He quit creating. It's amazing when we think about how we're discovering in the rainforest whole, uh, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of new creatures all the time. Insects and, and amphibians. and just Where did these come from? Oh, they must have just recently evolved. <laughs> no. God made those at the beginning. All of this is, is from creation. It's just a lot we haven't discovered yet. There's all kinds of microorganisms we have no idea about yet. Yeah, Jerome? Yeah, I thought back to when I was in school and just thinking about one of the first things you learned in science is that matter is neither created nor destroyed. Yeah, just transformed. It's tra- right. So everything that's there is the same stuff that was there and the same stuff that will be there until it's no longer there. Yeah, until God destroys it. There is a time God says he's going to destroy all matter. This physical and even the heavenly realm, both of those are temporary. God made those with an express end purpose in mind. There is a special realm where he is that he wants us to be a part of. But even this heavenly and this celestial, this uh, terrestrial realm will be destroyed. The elements will be burned up. But you're right. So all this has been here. God made this at the beginning. He just stopped now with his work of creation. All that's left now is procreation and manipulation of the creation. And we'll see that happening. So because he rested here, what did he do on this day? Verse 3. There's two things he did. He blessed it. That's a good thing. <laughs> this is a blessed day for God and sanctified. sanctified. Anybody have a different word there? Declared it holy. Anybody have the word separated there? Translators are interesting people, aren't they? It's the same word, separated all through there, that's used here now and said sanctified because that's what it means. <laughs> He, this is the seventh separation he made. We talked about he would separate seven things. He separated now this day. And so he's blessed and separated this day because he rested on it. And what did he tell man to do with this day? It's a trick question. What did he tell man to do here? He told man to um, rest after a week's work like as he did when he created the earth. Where did he say that? You're right, sort of. I've tried to trick you, and I got you, and I'm sorry, I didn't mean to pick on you. Where did he say that? You're right. So when I ask this question, I say, what did he tell man to do? If people just respond because they know what Exodus says later, they'll say, he's saying, man, he's keep Sabbath. But if they're reading the text, they'll say, nothing. <laughs> i say, you're right. God did not give the command for the Sabbath here. The Adventists are adamant. I grew up in an Adventist home, so I, I know what they teach about this. They're adamant that from creation, because God blessed and separated it, that he wanted all of his creation to keep the Sabbath. That is not true. Uh, if you'll look with me, uh, this is helpful, I believe. Exodus 20 is when he revealed the Sabbath at Sinai. Nehemiah 9 tells us that. But go to Deuteronomy 5. This is more helpful than Exodus 20. In Deuteronomy, when Moses is reiterating the commandments, this is after 40 years of wandering, He tells them a couple of things that are a little different than he told the original people when they received it the first time or when God just revealed it to them. And these two subtleties are really, really important distinctions. They were really helpful to me in dealing with this question in my own life. In Exodus 20, he tells them that God told them to uh, uh, keep the Sabbath or remember the Sabbath to keep it holy is what he says in Exodus 20. But in Deuteronomy 5, starting at verse 12, he says, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. He didn't say remember it. That's a subtle distinction, but it's an important one. When you're telling somebody to remember this, you're saying, hey, write this down. I don't want you to forget this. This is something new to you, so don't forget it. 
So in Exodus, he said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And then the argument from the Adventists is, if they're remembering it, something they've done all their life. No. He's saying remember it because they've never done it before. He wants them from now forward to remember it. If I tell you, remember November 3rd, does that mean you always knew my birthday was November 3rd? No, but you will now. <laughs> so remember it going forward. But here, after 40 years in the wilderness where they've been observing the Sabbath, he says, keep doing that. Observe the Sabbath. Yes, Beth. So is translations that say, be careful to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, that would be an incorrect No. Thing? No, over and over he will say that all through Leviticus and other places. But as your, your Deuteronomy say, be careful to remember. Yes. Yeah, there are some translational questions. I would say the word here is observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Uh, in, in all the translations I've seen, what, what version are you using? Holman Christian Standard. Holman Christian Standard. I don't know that version very well. All the versions I've seen, this word is observe. I will look that up. I appreciate that. But the uh, all the other versions I've used, there's a, there's a distinction made between remembering and observing. And the point here would be that they're to keep doing something they've already been doing. But it doesn't that that verbiage doesn't necessarily make or break this argument because as we go through here, you'll see the crux. I found that one much later than, than the point that I usually make. I appreciate you bringing that up, though. I will look into that. Observe the Sabbath day, we're in verse 12, to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor any of your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. If we stop there, then I might have to agree with the Adventists. But we don't. Verse 15. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Who did God command to keep the Sabbath day? The Jews who had been slaves in Egypt. The Gentiles weren't given that command. Nobody before Egypt was given that command. In fact, the book of Genesis is being revealed to them in this form at least at Sinai after they've already come out of Egypt. They're learning who they are. They've been hearing this oral tradition, these promises to Abraham and to Jacob and Isaac, and they've been hearing all of these promises. Now Moses is saying, this is who you are. This people that's making a covenant with God right here. And so he gives them this history of how God made them and where he put them and how he got them where they are. And so now they don't have to do it by what we've heard. This is what God said. And there's a big difference here. As they're coming in, God wants to unite them under that, that rallying cry. We're God's children. So that point in Deuteronomy 5, though, is the Sabbath was given after they came out of Egypt, not before. And so they didn't know anything about this. There was actually a test Sabbath right before they get to Sinai where they're going to get uh, God's going to bring them food, and he tells them, but on Friday, you gather twice as much that, uh, that you need, and some of them fail the test. <laughs> but he's just preparing them for this Sabbath he is going to reveal. That's, that may be too much of a belabored point, but I think it's an important distinction to make. We need to be able to handle what God did here. He rested. He blessed this day. Not everything that he does is exactly what we're to do. But if he tells us, do this because I did, then we do. There are things God does that we're not expected to but everything that he gives us to do that we are. He's God. So he rested from this day. He, he rested on this day. He blessed and sanctified it because of uh, he finished all the work of his creation. There is no new creation being made. The new creation will be in Christ. It's actually a restoration creation. It's not something really new. It's been promised ever since the beginning. All right, comments or questions up through verse 3 before we move on? Yes, Jerome. Yeah, I was just thinking um, to, like to help to really solidify that um, theology there. Basically, you have the pre-law 
and you know, pre-law, and then the law of Moses, and the Sabbath observance didn't come until the law was given. So anything before that would not have been applicable because the law hadn't been instilled, uh, installed yet. Is that a good Absolutely. Point? In fact, we may see an example of that in chapter 4 when we see the offerings of Cain and Abel. Some people will try to judge their offerings based on the law that came so much later. <laughs> yeah, we, we can't do that. Some of the things will look similar, and God will pick up on things that people were doing and will incorporate that as law. Well. I believe they were revealed to those people personally. But there was a patriarchal system where God spoke to the fathers who then taught the families. I think we see Adam teaching Eve. Uh, but after that, when the nation was formed, they got a national law. And they were under eventually under one king. It was supposed to be God their king. They rejected that. But they have a national law that will hold them together. That's what really makes a nation, is a law that governs them. Uh, so, yeah, that's a great obser uh, observation. Well, we're going to begin to see a distinction made here, starting at verse 4. In fact, what we're going to have is kind of a repetition of the creation story, the creation account, but with a focus now on one specific day and one specific part of that day, on the sixth day, looking at man and woman being created. And so God will begin with sort of a, a pre-summary uh, statement, and then he'll tell what he's, what he's going to tell us. So let's read 4 through 7. I'll make sure we're doing okay on time. Yeah, 4 through 7. Who take that for us? Thank you, Mark. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Alright, so, a couple of distinctions made here. First, I love your translation. Mine says this is the history of the heavens and the earth, but yours says this is the generations of the heaven and the earth. And that's the word that's actually here. The book of Genesis is a recording of several generations. Uh, there's at least ten. There may be more. Generations through here. And we get lots of lists of names later on. But it's interesting to me this idea that we're going to be looking at the generations of the heaven and the earth. He talked about the creation of the heavens and the earth in verse 1. Now he's going to talk about the generations of the heavens and the earth. Because what we're going to see is that man, when he is brought together with his heavenly part, this breath from God, and his earthly part, this dust from the earth, when those come together, man is uniquely the generation of heaven and earth. He is a part of both. And it's really interesting to see that and how God explains that in the text. So man will literally be the generation of heaven and earth. And so, uh, there's a second distinction that's made, and I imagine you didn't notice this. It took me a long time, and I, and I had some help from a commentator, uh, a Jewish commentator, who is God in verse 4? Did you notice that there's a change? Lord God. Lord God, all of a sudden. This is Jehovah Elohim. For the first time, we see that word used here. All through the first chapter, we didn't see that. We saw God the creator, but there was no man for him to have a relationship with. This is now Jehovah, the covenant God, as he brings man, and we're going to see very closely the creation of man, and so it'll be Lord God through chapters 2 and 3. It's really interesting to notice that change. And I didn't notice it at first. But it shows there's a distinction made starting with this verse. This is one of the reasons I believe this verse starts the next chapter, uh, technically. Again, that's not a big deal, but it's interesting to think about. So, 
there's an issue. Remember verse 1, God's going to make the heavens and the earth in chapter 1. Verse, chapter 2, verse, verse 4, which is verse 1, God's going to make this generation of heavens and earth. But then verse 2 in chapter 1, there's an issue, or actually three issues need to be taken care of. Here, there's a couple of issues. What's going on in verse 5? Or what's not going on, perhaps better? What's no that? Rain. No, rain no rain yet. And what is the result, or, or the lack of result, because of that? The plants aren't growing. Well, how in the world are they going to eat and survive? There's a, there's a linguistic distinction here. His version says sprung up. Again, I like that. Some of the versions say sprouted. Mine just says grown. And so you think about, well, how'd they survive? <laughs> you know, this is still the sixth day. We will look at that in a little bit. So there wasn't really time for them to starve to death. But they needed to eat something. And the idea here is that the, the procreation of the plants had not begun to happen yet. They weren't sprouting this new growth, this new life, because God wanted man to be involved in that. So there's no man to till or work the earth yet. And God hadn't made it rain yet. In fact, my understanding, we don't see rain until the flood. God has got this cloud layer. Peter talks about the, the world that then was reserved under judgment, under water. There was this cloud layer that was all around the earth. And that was just be waiting for the day that God planned to use that. He says he's now got us reserved for fire. Uh, and so he's got that somewhere uh, for, for its use as well. But there's, this, uh, there's no rain yet and no man to till the ground. So God is going to come in and he's going to act again. This is what he does. When there's an issue, God resolves it. Now, the earth is still good. This is not problematic. We're still looking at the, we're into the sixth day of creation. He hasn't looked and said it's very good yet. He's making things so that it will be very good. So he sees that he's going to need to take care of watering the plants and he's going to need a man to till them. So how does he water the plants? Verse 6, not with rain. <laughs> Makes a mist come up from the ground. That's something you'll notice when you go through the prophetic language. And a lot of times when you're looking at the history of Israel, even in droughts, Mount Hermon and a couple other places had this really strong mist, this really strong dew that would form, and this cloud because it was on the hillside, that would always keep it green. Even when God was punishing Israel with droughts, there were places where there would be fattened cows and there would be plenty to eat. It was a residual from this language here in Eden. And we'll talk about that a little bit more when we go looking at the nature of Eden in our next lesson, the, the, the nature of paradise. So God has caused the mist to come up to water the whole face of the ground. And then verse 7, he's going to make man. And what a beautiful picture this is. The Lord God, what verb do you have there? Yeah, it's not the Lord God spoke man out of the dust of the ground. He formed. In almost all the translations I've seen of this word, it's the same idea of Forming. You ever made a little, uh, using modeling play, ever made a little person or a little snake or whatever you might make? Everybody tries to make a little man at some point. That's the idea here. It's a very intimate, God is touching that, that mud, that dust. And he's forming it with his hands intricately, exactly the way he wants it. God, the master builder. We are, uh, you are the potter, we are the clay. That idea comes through <laughs> later in a couple of the prophets. And that's really the idea here, that God is forming that little man perfectly the way he wants it. And then, after he gets him his physical aspect exactly the way he wants, then he breathes into him the breath of life. So you may imagine God at his work desk, and he's got this little claim in me. He sets him up and he goes, Whew! That'd be powerful. But that is not what the text says. And if you ever done CPR, you ever had to perform CPR, you ever seen it done? How do you breathe into someone's nostrils? You stand way back and go, Whew! and hope it gets in there. What has God done with this little clay man? He hasn't left him on his desk. He's brought him to his face. 
you breathe, you cover the nose and mouth, don't you? You breathe into nostrils with a very intimate kind of approximation. The Jewish viewing of how God made man, the Jewish thought, that our thought ought to be, is this intimate kind of God kiss. And that makes so much more sense when you think about how often the Old Testament and the New talks about seeking his face or his face being turned away from you. How are you going to breathe into his nostrils if your face is turned away? Think about the blessing. I believe it's in number six. I want to read this blessing. Um, the idea, and we, we hear this. I, the, the Irish picked up on some of this language uh, in their blessing of one another when they're going out to travel. Numbers, chap, uh, Numbers chapter six, starting at verse 22. And we'll, we'll end with this thought. I want you to have that vision in your head, though, of God's intimate breathing in to man, this, this breath of life. Number six, this is the priestly blessing. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, verse 23, sorry, number 6, 23. This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name on the children of Israel, and I will bless them. Isn't that beautiful? You ever thought about God made you by, by kissing you into existence? You should think that. <laughs> and so he's made man of this dust of the earth. Dust is something we just love, right? <laughs> My son's got allergies. He gets rid of it really quickly. <laughs> dust gets in, he's getting it out. My wife's taking a broom and getting all the dust out of our house and a rag on all the furniture. We don't want dust around. That's nasty stuff. And that's what God made us out of, the most base element that's there on the earth. And he's chose to make us out of that. So that should humble us on the day that we think we're really special. <laughs> when the king of Babylon went down to the grave, all the other kings said, Oh, you who brought down the nations, I guess you found out you're just dust like the rest of us. <laughs> That's all we are. So we think we're really something. We need to remember we're dust. But we think we're nothing. And that happens sometimes. We feel like we're just worthless. We need to remember God picked that dust up and kissed it. <laughs> he breathed life into me. So man is at the same time one of the most base parts of creation, and one of the most exalted parts of creation. And God brought those two together to bring us to him. It's a beautiful image, and we need to, to hold that before us whenever we're thinking about who we are in terms of our serving others and in terms of uh, serving God. We need to remember that he has given us this special place. So God willing, we'll pick up in just a few moments at, at verse 8. And we'll begin to look at what, man, at what God does with this man he's formed and he's given this life to now. Uh, but I wanted us to get that view before we look at the paradise. We've got about uh, uh, 10 minutes of a break here. Any comments or questions before that? Sorry, I guess I ought to take those first. Or we can get to those in the next section, too, if you want. So about 10 minutes.